0: Has the threat posed by the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster to human health and the ecosystem been understated by government and regulatory authorities? What are the prospects of another Fukushima-type disaster taking place with plants in the United States and elsewhere? Portland-based Earth activist Mimi Gurman of Radcast will join us to discuss these and other questions related to humanity's Faustian pact with nuclear power. And, what is the evidence that clandestine programs to control the weather are not only being contemplated, but have been in effect since the 1940s? What is the ultimate purpose of these programs, and how are these programs affecting human health and the health of the ecosystem? Dane Wigington of geoengineering watch has been exploring these questions for over a decade and will share his findings and concerns in the second half hour on today's program nuclear radiation and geoengineering two threats to life on earth bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines the global research news hour is on the air welcome to the global research news hour for the week of january sixteenth two thousand fifteen i am series host and producer michael welch The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Site. Usually Muslim terrorists are prepared to die in the attack, yet the two professionals who hit Charlie Hebdo were determined to escape and succeeded, an amazing feat. Their identity was allegedly established by the claim that they conveniently left for the authorities their ID in the getaway car. Such a mistake is inconsistent with the professionalism of the attack and reminds me of the undamaged passport found miraculously among the ruins of the two WTC towers that served to establish the identity of the alleged 9/11 hijackers. It is a plausible inference that the ID left behind in the getaway car was the ID of the two Koachi brothers, convenient patsies later killed by police, and from whom we will never hear anything, and not the ID of the professionals who attacked Charlie Hebdo. An important fact that supports this inference is the report that the third suspect in the attack, Hamid Murad the alleged driver of the getaway car, when seeing his name circulating on social media as a suspect, realized the danger he was in and quickly turned himself into the police for protection against being murdered by security forces as a terrorist. That comes from the article The Charlie Hebdo Attack, Characteristics of a False Flag Operation by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted January 14th, originally posted at paulcraigroberts.org. Without question, the most censored news story of 2014 as determined by this test, a test that I have been constantly carrying out ever since the May 2nd massacre that the new Ukrainian government perpetrated in Odessa, is precisely the Ukrainian news story. It's the winner of my contest. This ongoing news story started with the February 22nd coup, then included the May 2nd massacre, which led to Donbass' secession from Ukraine, and it finally is continuing with this ethnic cleansing of Donbass. The purpose of the May 2nd massacre was, in fact, to terrify the pro-Russians in Ukraine's southeast, especially in Donbass, the most pro-Russian area, so as to precipitate the secession of Donbass, so that there would then be an excuse for the Ukrainian government to bomb it and so to get rid of the residents there whose overwhelming votes had clearly made Yanukovych Ukraine's president. The Obama administration's game plan is to keep the land and to kill the people who are living on it. This sequence of events has been major news and it's been thoroughly suppressed in the U.S. That comes from the article The Most Censored News Story of 2014 Was... What? By Eric Zeus, posted... January 14th. Vladimir Putin ordered the Russian state energy giant Gazprom to cut supplies to and through Ukraine amid accusations, according to the Daily Mail, that its neighbor has been siphoning off and stealing Russian gas. Due to these transit risks for European consumers in the territory of Ukraine, quote unquote, Gazprom cut gas exports. To Europe by 60%, plunging the continent into an energy crisis within hours. Perhaps explaining the explosion higher in natural gas prices and oil today, gas companies in Ukraine confirmed that Russia had cut off supply, and six countries reported a complete shut off of Russian gas. The EU raged that the sudden cut off to some of its member countries was, quote unquote, Completely unacceptable, but Gazprom CEO Alexei Miller later added that Russia plans to shift all its natural gas flows crossing Ukraine to a route via Turkey, and Russian Energy Minister Alexander Novak stated unequivocally, quote unquote, "The decision has been made." As Bloomberg goes on to note, Gazprom has reduced deliveries via Ukraine. After price and debt disputes with the neighboring country that twice in the past decade disrupted supplies to the EU during freezing weather. As from the article, EU Energy Crisis Russia Cuts Off Gas Supplies Through Ukraine to Six European Countries by Tyler Durden, posted January 15th, originally appearing at Zero Hedge. We've heard about anthropogenic climate change and the threat of a nuclear war between rival superpowers. The Global Research News Hour is focusing this week on lesser known human generated threats to the welfare of the human and other species. Nuclear radiation from nuclear facilities around the world and geoengineering or attempts to manipulate the weather. We'll start our discussion by talking about the nuclear question. The nearly four year old Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear disaster, which resulted in the dispersal of radioactive particles into the ocean and atmosphere, is an ongoing crisis, even though the impacts have been understated by governments and media. RADCAST is a citizen monitoring system that's regularly been recording radiation levels worldwide in the wake of the Fukushima Dai- Daiichi disaster and its findings seem to be at odds with a lot of what we're being told by government authorities about the risks posed by the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. Mimi Gurman is a citizen activist, an earth activist, and a major mover and shaker behind Radcast. Uh, She joins us now by telephone from Portland, Oregon, where she's based. She's here to acquaint us with the risks posed not only by the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, but by the nuclear industry at large. So, Mimi Gurman, welcome to the Global Research News Hour.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, this is a really big topic, and it's one that um, it's one that doesn't get talked about often enough in the environmental movement. And I've been trying as well to get environmental leaders to talk about this more because leaving this out is the elephant in the room. You can't not talk about this and talk about, you know, trying to do something for the environment. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all yours. <laughs>
0: okay. Now, I, I just, first of all, wanted to uh, just open up the discussion. There was a paper published last month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and it includes, a, uh, a, the paper author is a uh, Canadian researcher. This was uh, published by the Fisheries and Oceans Canada. And it, it says from that uh, government website, the first and only systematic study of its kind validating ocean circulation models while tracking the eastward movement of radioactive isotopes. And, and it says that since the Fukushima incident, radiation levels off the BC coast have increased to about two becquerels, uh, per cubic meter, and it's expected to peak in 2015 to 16 at about 5 becquerels per cubic meter of water. To put that in perspective, Canada's standard for cesium-137 in drinking water is 10,000 becquerels per cubic meter, meaning that the increase in cesium-137 in the Canadian Pacific waters do not represent a threat to human or animal health. Um, so I, I guess I'm kind of curious to get your reaction to that uh, you know, apparently, that apparent good news from this uh, body.
1: Yeah, it's not good news at all. What they're saying is that they have found um, cesium in the water. And, you know, I have to say that we've had cesium in our oceans, 137 in our oceans from bomb testing, and we're still seeing that. And what we're looking for specifically from Fukushima is 134, uh, cesium-134. And... One, one of the things that we have to understand is how uh, um, isotopes work. When they're in the ocean and fish are swimming in the ocean, fish ingest those particles. And we never know what fish unless we've actually tested that fish, um, if that's been the case or not. But you have to assume you have to assume that because the home of fishes in the ocean that fish are getting affected from, um, the radionuclides that have been put out both from the bomb testing in the sixties and from Fukushima. So any amount of radionuclides of cesium in the water is going to affect the fish. And when we eat the fish, we get affected. So they can, they can, Give us any low number they want and pretend that because it's lower than the standards in Canada, your standards, or here, the EPA standards in the United States, then everything is okay. It's not okay because once you eat these isotopes, these radioactive isotopes, they go into your body and they lodge in certain places depending on what they are. And in this case, for cesium, it it ends up giving you any form of um, you know, heart damage, tissue damage, anything like this. And when I say damage, it goes all the way to giving you cancer. So just because in the area of water that they've located, radioisotopes, it's low there. It doesn't mean it's low everywhere. And just because it's low, it doesn't mean that it isn't harmful. What we know over decades of study from scientists is that Even low amounts of um, radioactive particles are dangerous and can cause cancer and can kill you. We can never say about low doses that they cannot kill you. And because of that, we have to understand what is coming at us from the nuclear industry. And what's coming at us is, on one hand, a PR campaign that is funded by billions of dollars, and to keep telling us that things are low and comparing them to these astronomically high figures so that we see how low they are and all the while pretending that we're fine and we're not fine and we're not going to be fine and people are already dying of this and they've been dying of this and this is, this is what's perpetuated and all life in the ocean that is affected by this is going to be dying from this and is dying from this. All,
0: so All life.
1: if. If you are a plant and let's take seaweed, seaweed can't continue to you know be i I suppose that let me start this again. If a plant form in the ocean is affected by cesium and you eat that cesium, we are then affected. The plant life is not supposed to be eating cesium and and you know flourishing something is going to happen. In the DNA structure of any form of living matter, when dealing with radioactive nuclear isotopes, so yes, all life that comes into contact with this will be affected.
0: Mm. I note that one of the uh, you 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 on your website the radcast.org there is a uh, references uh, to the research of a Tim, Dr. Timothy Mousseau. Could you possibly elaborate, or, or at least? Uh, uh, maybe accentuate the elements of, of his research that uh, give us a sense of, of what is actually happening to these life forms as a result of, of cesium and strontium? Oh, sure.
1: Um, Dr. Mousseau has been studying radiation in DNA in animal and plant life since Chernobyl and at Chernobyl and now at Fukushima. And what he's found is that not only is plant and animal life affected by um, radioactive isotopes, but the DNA structure is affected. So you might not see in one particular form of animal, let's say birds, you might not see something that looks wrong, but three generations from that bird, if you follow you know the the progress of life from a particular bird family you will find DNA issues in future generations and we know now that this is true from his research. his research has been invaluable to us, and now he 's over at Fukushima finding similar things so um,
0: so if you just to clarify so if you have some this damage that takes place to an organism and then you move him to a to some isolated nuclear free facility. Those impacts are going to show up in the project anyway.
1: Yes, yes, because it's in the DNA. The DNA has now been messed with. It's no longer, you know, the healthy strands of DNA. It's been altered by these isotopes. And the alterations might not show themselves immediately, but they will show themselves in future generations. And they will be altered. Hmm. We also see that, too, in in the children of Chernobyl. Mm Mm-hmm. In all of the future generations that happened post the Chernobyl accident, we have seen these kinds of malformations in children being born and with birth defects and, and stillbirths and all kinds of fetal problems as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. okay, so you, and just in terms of like we'll we'll get to the larger issue uh, in a minute, but in terms of Fukushima itself, it's been almost four years now. Are we starting to see those results come in in terms of the impacts it's it's having on people, uh yes. on on organisms and on human beings? We are, right?
1: Yes, we're seeing it in Japan, and we're seeing it on the West Coast, and we're seeing it in butterflies and. Um, I encourage people to look up Dr. Musso because he's the one who he's on the he's the forefront. He's the face of that research, and he's amazing. And um, it's peer reviewed, and you know I, his studies are are well documented. Mm-hmm. So The answer is yes. We are being affected. We are dying from Fukushima. We are dying from Chernobyl. We are dying from Three Mile Island. We are dying from constant, incessant leaks from nuclear plants around the world, no matter where you live. We are dying from uranium mining, and the cancers are growing, and that is what's happening.
0: Mm. Now... um what about some of the other uh, the, there are there other major trouble spots that uh, you'd like to mention uh, uh, perhaps in the United States that uh, you know where, where these uh, there's uh, the risk of another Fukushima that's on the horizon
1: We have the risk of another Fukushima at any given nuclear power plant that's past its prime, which is all of them in the United States so we shouldn't get um, I caution everybody to use language that makes it seem as though some nuclear plants are more safe than another because that's part of the PR campaign. There's nothing true about it. There's nothing true from going backwards from the prevention of a uh, nuclear accident at any of these nuclear plants. Um, The nuclear accidents that we've seen have been human-caused. Some of the things that are happening now that we're seeing just recently. We're seeing freezing pipes in nuclear power plants now that our climate change is what it is. Um, In the Midwest, we were just noticing that, that we're having issues at power plants because the water is freezing, the pipes are freezing, things are corroding. Sometimes things get too hot, you know. Sometimes there's floods. Sometimes there's droughts. Any of these things affects a nuclear power plant, and there's nothing that any of us can do about that except for one, and that is to band together and shut down every nuclear power plant that is out there, that is near us, that is far from us, anywhere. It's really that's the only thing that can be done to help alleviate that particular problem, which is meltdown. The, the next issue that we have is what to do with the waste, and that that is an issue unto itself. This is something that's going to be here far beyond um, human human existence on our planet. The mm. waste will survive us.
0: Yeah, and i i know that uh, i know for example that there's a a major uh, concern with the you know, like one one major red flag i would say would be uh, one that you mentioned on the site uh, Diablo Canyon. Mm-hmm. You do you want to talk about how that the uh, specific uh, risks, uh, the clear and present danger threat that uh, coming from that uh, reactor to the nearby community?
1: Well, we all of us on the West Coast, whether it's Diablo Canyon or here, located near me, is uh, the Columbia Generating Station. We will be affected from earthquakes the seismic studies that have come out have proven that there is no nuclear plant standing on the west coast that can survive a the the major earthquake that we are expecting which is a nine and we're far overdue for that and that's not me saying that that's scientists saying that Um, i know that portland is attempting though um not well at fixing our city to you know to deal with the, the impending doom from this earthquake but what isn't being done in california is diablo is still standing it's still running what isn't being done in washington is the columbia generating station is still standing it's still running if if that if and when that earthquake comes diablo and the columbia generating station can so easily malfunction and we can have an immediate shutdown we can have an immediate meltdown these are this is real This isn't me being an alarmist. These are just facts with how nuclear power runs. The first thing everybody needs to know is that you need water to run a nuclear power plant, and you need the grid. And if the grid goes down and electricity gets cut off, welcome to our inner Fukushima. Mm -hmm. If the drought affects something first, then there's no water. Welcome to the Fukushima in the United States or Canada or anywhere, you know. And we're dealing with these things now. California is, is, is a drought zone. Mimi and-, and it's sitting and Diablo Canyon is sitting on an earthquake, you know, on, on the fault lines. So, you know, and Columbia Generating Station is sitting on twelve fault lines. It's crazy. It is insanity to have these things up and running. And what do we hear? We hear more and more articles that the level of radiation that's being put up by Fukushima is safe. There is no such thing as safe radiation.
0: Mimi, could you help us understand the, the forces that are conspiring to, uh, you know, block these facts from public consciousness? Maybe I mean I, I'm thinking, for example, with the Hindenburg disaster back in the, the early 20th century, they were using hydrogen in dirigibles. There was a huge explosion, which, you know, if you thought about it, that that's going to happen sooner or later. So the response was, you know, <laughs> we got to stop this uh, using hydrogen in these things. And yet, with something like Fukushima you 'd think that would be we 'd have that kind of uh, oh the humanity moment and then s- proceed to stop building these things, let alone you know start to decommission these reactors. What is blocking our ability to act on you know the the clear threat that 's being posed
1: well, money um, you know, and the fact here in the United States that the Supreme Court has dubbed corporations as people with rights you know to do whatever it is that they want to do and so the money comes in and the laws get changed which is what's happened here all protective laws that we ever had while you know perhaps too few even you know at the time that we had them we no longer have so we are an unprotected um, organism on the earth we, the people and animals and plant life, from um, the corporation which is Godzilla. Mm. And the corporation the corporation has its its blood flow coming from and with the, the blessings of in the United States, the Supreme Court.
0: What about so Go ahead. What about oversight bodies uh, or so-called oversight bodies? They, they, the EPA—they don't exist. They don't. Yeah,
1: they—they they don't exist. None of them exist. Um, oversight is yet again—it's another term from the PR campaign. Oversight is supposed to be the DOE, the Department. And, and I'm speaking about the United States. The Department of Energy here um, is oversight. The NRC is oversight. All none of these things our oversight because there is no punishment when anything fails and if there's no punishment for anything that fails or to protect something from failing you know to in order to protect people there's just no oversight um but we have these terms we have terms like the epa but when you know the epa is run by people who are against the foundation upon which the epa was built We have no EPA. The FDA, the same way. You know, the vice president of Monsanto runs um, the FDA here. It's like that in any of these so-called watch groups, you know. So there is no oversight. They all work for one thing, and they all work for money. And, again, I know that I might sound like a fanatic. This is just – these are just troops I, I tell anybody. You go, go into the NRC, talk to the NRC, call them up, they're accessible. Call them up and say, why didn't this happen? Whatever it might be that you find. And they'll tell you that it's not their responsibility. They'll tell you that it's the DOE's responsibility. Then go to the DOE. The DOE will tell you it's the NRC's responsibility, you know. And it goes on like this. No matter where you go, and I've done the calls, and many, many of the people in the anti-NIC movement have also done these calls. So we, we know this. Mm-hmm. So we are, really, we are an organism. We, the living, the, the, those with minds and souls and a desire to have a planet that is healthy and one that can make us healthy and thrive. We are aware that the reason that we are now riding in what we call now the sixth extinction is because we are run by greed, we're run by money, and we are run by the corporation. And because these are laws, there's nothing that we can do about it anymore except ride this out. So while we're here, you know, and while we're having these discussions, and people say, well, what can you do about it? Well, you can't do anything about the long run, but what you can do in the short run is try to shut down a nuclear plant near you because at least that way, maybe you or your children or your children's children won't have to deal with, you know, a meltdown. Okay. And, you know, that's really where we're at. We're at a very, very terrible time. And it's, it can't get better because no one has listened.
0: Mm. Yeah, so, well, it's a very uh, gloomy prospect. And, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I... Um, and I kind of wish we had a little bit more time to chat. Uh, is there maybe a sort of like a, if people want more information in terms of taking action or, uh, or or just to satisfy their own understanding so they can orient themselves? Um, your website? Well,
1: or? Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of different sites that are up um, online, primarily Facebook sites. Um, the one that that we run out here is called No Nukes Northwest, and that's on Facebook, and that deals with our area primarily. Um, Fukushima Response is down in California. You can find that on Facebook. Um, if you look up any if you look up no nukes groups on the web you 'll find things um, and you can join them and be part of the discussion and learn about what the nuclear industry is trying to get away with and By the way, I did want to say just before we have to go. Um, for folks listening to this and who are interested, if you hear the term small modular reactor, that's where the nuclear industry is, is wanting to head. They're wanting to forget about what they owe in the cleanup form to nuclear power plants, and they want to just forget that and move right into these things called small modular reactors. They are not safe. They are a death machine. So I'm just giving you the heads up on that. There's lots of research out there. Helen Caldicott has done some articles on SMRs and thorium, and I encourage you to look her up as well, Dr. Helen Caldicott.
0: Thank you very much for joining us, Mimi.
1: You're welcome. I'm sorry it's such a bummer, but it really is.
0: (laughs) That's okay. Mimi Gurman is uh, an earth activist, and uh, she's based in Portland, Oregon, and uh, Among the many websites she mentioned, she's also with radcast.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Speaking right now with Danu- Dane Wigington, who has an extensive background in solar energy and is a former employee of Bechtel Power Corporation and was a licensed contractor in California and Arizona. He is uh, one of the most outspoken uh, people out there these days on the topic of geoengineering, and uh, that is, of course, a, uh, proposed as a remedy for uh, some of the concerns that we have about uh, climate change as we heard from an earlier interview. So I'm going to introduce our guest right now. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Dane Wigington.
2: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for trying to put more light on this issue that, again, as I mentioned to you off-air, people would prioritize if they understood the gravity of this issue and the uh, degree to which it's hampering the entire life process of the planet and the planet's life support systems.
0: Maybe just for starters, could you uh, help us understand what got you uh, motivated to focus uh, so much on this specific issue or what alerted you to the idea that it was even a problem?
2: I'm not an activist. I'm not politically oriented. I've never been involved with any such battle like this. It's not something I wanted to do. But as I uh, completed my home in the Pacific Northwest, expecting to find clean air, a large off-grid home, the grid patterns that would appear over our region on an intermittent basis on some days would block seventy to eighty percent of my solar pv uptake clearly something was going on there was non-commercial uh, directions with uh, some of these large grid patterns of what appeared to be spraying and i quickly came to the subject of geoengineering was quite shocked that i had never heard of this issue this is in about two thousand this is two thousand one and It described exactly what I saw, solar obscuration, the blocking of the sun. That's the express goal of solar radiation management, which is part of stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. I looked for the primary elements named in patents. And by the way, there's about 150 patents that we have posted on our website, geoengineeringwatch.org. So there was a lot of data, and the primary elements in those patents I looked for in the precipitation tests, tested at the state lab, found what I did not want to find, primary element aluminum, And Michael, in in the course of the following five years, the levels of aluminum in our precipitation went from a baseline of seven parts per billion, which is already very high, given our remote location surrounded by forest. There's no industry or anything. And in the next five years, we saw levels climb to as much as 3,450 parts per billion. And that's literally highly toxic rain. That's almost a 50,000% increase. So it's it's killing everything here where we're at, Uh, changing soil pHs, killing soil microbes, the uh, forest is in sharp decline, and uh, it's just been a battle I never wanted. I never, ever wanted this. But quite simply, when you know every breath you take is laden with this toxic material, and you know that from lab testing, uh, hard not to face this battle.
0: Mm. So and you, so you you noticed that increase in aluminum concentration. Uh, that was in your area. Did you start looking at other areas to see uh, if they were similar Um, results taking place in your initial inquiries?
2: We did and in fact the results were the same and there's a great variance in the level of metal in various tests because of course depending on where you're at underneath what's being dispersed um, you may or may not get high levels but we've never had a negative there's a lot of metal floating around in the air and we have subsequent peer-reviewed study, one from 2010 on a thousand whales from the most remote places on the planet and they were tested for inorganics at the last minute and they contained, the report used this exact term, jaw-dropping levels of aluminum in their tissues. So when we look at human health tests, human uh, tests for blood, hair and urine on these heavy metals, virtually every subject tested has off-the-chart levels of these metals. And then we look at the what we would expect to see with rise in human respiratory ailment, it's off the charts, and every ailment that we can associate and connect with heavy metals like aluminum, barium, all of them are off the scale. In fact, we have recent study from MIT stating that on the current trajectory, we we know autism, for example, has gone from one in 5,000 in 1975 to one in 47 today in that 39-year period, and now Researchers from MIT, and that's certainly one of the most recognized research institutions on the planet, saying on the current trajectory, within 10 years, one in two children will have autism. Should be headlines everywhere, but it's not. Because these programs, the, the power structure is trying desperately to hide for obvious reasons. If the population knew that they were a part of this grand and lethal experiment and their health had been permanently compromised and their environment on which they and their children depend for survival has been damaged beyond repair in any time frame that matters. And not saying this is the only cause, certainly we have too many causes of environmental degradation to even begin to uh, consider on the show, but I believe mathematically it's inarguable that the greatest single all-out assault on the biosphere is global climate engineering not the only one? Again, a hundred million tons of carbon in the atmosphere a day is a horrific problem. Defoli- forced, uh, uh degradation and so forth. I mean, we, there's too many things to list. But the greatest all-out assault to Earth's overall life support systems, I believe, mathematically, is climate engineering.
0: This topic has been very much tainted with that term conspiracy theory, right? Let's go that way. And, and that's uh, so. So you know, put some facts on the table that that this is in fact happening
2: what i would respond to for those who question whether or not this is going on we have film footage up close at altitude from right behind these aircraft nozzles visible turning the spray on and off that's film of the crime happening and that proof cannot be disputed and those who den- those who deny that are simply not willing to face this issue period so and we have people uh, the, the claim that these, condens, quote, condensation trails are normal behind these aircraft also a lie. All commercial aircraft and all military tankers have high-bypass turbofan jet engines. We have a 20-minute tutorial about that engine on the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org, but that engine is basically a giant fan. Eighty-five percent of the air that passes through that engine is non-combusted. By design, that engine is nearly incapable of making a condensation trail, except under the most extreme circumstances. And people's sense of deductive reasoning should kick in when they see a trail turning on and off. It looks like it was cut with a knife. That's not condensation. And people grab at straws also on the metal that's coming down in the rain and think, well, it's all coming from China. We have CARB studies, California Air Resource Board studies, proving that these metals don't float across oceans, with the exception of mercury, which converts to a gaseous state. So again, we have every single dot connecting. We have the U.S. military stating that climate change is the greatest national security threat of all, which means they don't have to discuss anything they do in the sky. We have no regulation whatsoever. We have agencies who are told not to look for these particulates. And I know that because I've been in high-level EPA meetings in Sacramento arranged by congressional rep 5 toppy level top, E-level, uh, top uh, epa staffers there a closed door meeting and i was told in my face they're mandated not to look for these materials they're told to look for combustion particulates only and these materials are not amongst them and we have a whole air testing agency that tests generally for pm10 10, 10 microns at best pm2.5 we're talking about particles exponentially smaller so they don't get picked up in any of the testing equipment that's all by design so Again, we have film footage of it happening. We have mountains of this material falling on us, matches the patents exactly. We have military stating their goal to own or control the weather. That's an actual military document. Um, We have the entire climate science community discussing this issue, but pretending it's not going on because to state otherwise is a bad career decision. So uh, while everybody's pretending this isn't happening, Michael, the ship is going down.
0: When did this... Uh, this uh, application or this geoengineering uh, start? I mean, I imagine it started at a fairly primitive level and maybe has become sophisticated over time.
2: That appears to be the case. In fact, all data indicates that the programs reached a significant level in the late 40s. And interestingly enough, we see on the global temperature rise graph, which was fairly linear from 1850 till till the late 1940s, When these programs ramped up and we have data to corroborate that they were ramped up then, patents and other documents, we saw a very anomalous leveling off of global temperature rise. We would expect the initial input to have much more effect. When you start to saturate the atmosphere with light scattering particulates, the initial effect is much greater because the negative effects have not yet kicked in. So We saw a leveling off of temperatures from the late 40s to about the early 70s, which had a lot of the climate science community scratching their heads. They couldn't figure out what was leveling off those temperatures. And we have reports from, for example, from Stanford on the Arctic haze. Now, the Poles is an area where it appears these programs were really uh, centered initially. And Stanford even reported an Arctic haze with metallic particles they could not figure out the source of. So, again, there's there's so many indications of these programs going on. And a document I found on um, the NASA Archive site from 1966, 80 pages long. People can look at this. I don't want anybody to believe what I'm saying. Google 1966 government document geoengineering. You'll find it. And it's a presidential document outlining the scope and scale of the programs as of 1966, budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars, 10 major federal agencies involved, about 12 major universities involved. There is so much data here that's being completely ignored, so much.
0: Okay. Is, is it just the U.S. government that's involved with these uh, the, the activities?
2: No. In fact, uh, there, there absolutely appears to be corroboration between even opposing governments. Uh, I also found a photograph from 1968, uh, a media photograph of the Soviet weather modification scientists touring the U.S. weather modification facilities at the height of the Cold War. You have China. In fact, you you probably remember this, Michael. China announced that don't worry about inclement weather over the Olympics. They would make sure there was none. You might perhaps remember those headlines. And China openly announced they were uh, highly involved in weather modification. They have a Bureau of Weather Modification. In fact, one interesting scenario that people should consider in 2009, even mainstream media covered this. If, if people go, if search uh, Chinese scientists create artificial snowstorm, the Chinese Bureau of Weather Modification created artificially chemically nucleated snow over Beijing, it did a billion dollars' worth of damage on the third go-around, at which time there was a lot of unhappy people, and they went more covert with their programs. But we see what absolutely appears to be... Massive ice nucleation happening over the continental U.S. And anybody who doesn't know that the weather is very different uh, is not paying much attention. I mean, we have temperature swings that are absolutely beyond belief. Uh, one example I'll give you Amarillo, Texas, last year, May 1st, 2013. All time record high in the ground was almost 100 degrees. Some reports were 100. It snowed the next day. Now, anybody who thinks it's a, a radical fluctuation like that is natural uh, doesn't know much about meteorology, and so we're seeing these kind of extremes. We saw uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, in late December. The nighttime low was almost 55 degrees. Media didn't report much on this because now they're simply trying to paint the picture that the, the planet is freezing over, and you know, as if there's no climate damage. They're trying to hide that damage, but almost 55 degrees in Minneapolis, and then uh, about five to six days later, it was 20 below. That's a 70-degree fluctuation. I mean, uh, again, when you chemically nucleate, you can create a a radically cold layer on the ground, but that layer is very shallow. It's a very shallow layer, and the the fluctuations in temperature, Michael, I'm sure people are noticing uh, if they're halfway awake.
0: Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, although it's more commonly, it's uh, explained to us as being related to CO2 concentrations.
2: Well, on that note, you know, again, CO2 is a problem at this level and increasing at this speed. And I'm not a Gore fan, and I'm not a carbon credits fan. Al Gore played exactly the part the power structure wanted him to play. He's a part of the power structure. Carbon credits are a sham. But putting 100 million tons of CO2 in the atmosphere a day is a problem, and it's a much bigger problem with climate engineering that keeps the planet from responding. Normally, when the CO2 increases, you would have much more rainfall. You'd have a stimulation for the boreal forests, so they start to increase their growth. They start to uptake that carbon. Now they can't because the bioavailable metals are toxifying the soils, we have peer-reviewed study on this. We know the effect of bioavailable metal exposure. It causes organisms to stop nutrient uptake, so the trees can't respond from the stimulation of the carbon. They're being poisoned, literally. We know that dispersing these uh, particulates in the atmosphere, uh, this uh, spraying of the metal particulates, destroys ozone. We have massive northern and some of southern hemisphere ozone holes now not being disclosed. We have UVB levels. This is this is extremely important. We have UVB levels, and we're metering this with state-of-the-art meters, about a thousand percent higher, ten times higher than we're being told. So it's burning the trees, burning their foliage.
0: When you say UVB, you mean it's, it's a particular frequency of ultraviolet radiation?
2: Correct. If UVB is in the range of 300 and 20 nanometers to 280 you have a on the uv scale you have uva at the top about 400 to 320 nanometer uvb 320 to 280 uvc 280 to 100 below uvc you have x-ray so we're not only seeing the full spectrum of uvb that's about a thousand percent higher than we're being told we're actually picking up uvc on the surface now as well not major amounts but the fact that we're getting any is extremely alarming. We're told UVC stops 100,000 feet up in the atmosphere. So the climate engineering is disrupting the hydrological cycle, toxifying our air, soils, and waters, every breath we take, shredding the ozone layer. Again, this can only be described as an all-out assault against life, and it's interesting, the whole climate science community, which is in total denial about the existence of these programs, because they know it's a bad career decision to say otherwise, but none of them, although they're all talking about geoengineering, and that we need to do it immediately, again, as if it's not going on already, none of them mention, oh, by the way, we all have to breathe what they're spraying. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, the the quote-unquote science community is nothing more than paid disinformation people uh, as a whole. I'm not saying there's not exceptions, but, I mean, it's alarming right now, the amount of uh, disinformation that's going on from the quote-unquote science community.
0: What about, um, I mean, you were talking about, uh, well, chemtrails, or, or you may, may referred to the term sol- solar radiation management. Is that, is that the only uh, a form of geoengineering that uh, you're principally concerned about?
2: No, there's many aspects to these programs. And, again, the the science terms are imperative to use. That's what gains traction for our cause. The chemtrails term is not a science term, and it's been intentionally Marginalized as, quote, conspiracy theory. But we have the ionosphere heaters as well, HARP. Most people have heard of HARP, High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. So we have, that's only one
0: facility. Based in Alaska?
2: Glocona, Alaska, yes. But there's two to three dozen large ground based facilities around the globe, an unknown number of mobile facilities like SBX radar. People can Google that. It looks like a massive golf ball on an oil derrick. So they can, with the data available even on HAARP, HARP can transmit 3.5 billion watts, billion with a B, into the ionosphere, which creates an electrical chain reaction, heats the ionosphere. The data indicates it can heat the ionosphere to 15,000 degrees Fahrenheit over areas hundreds of square miles. This can, this creates a bulge in space in the atmosphere, and this can steer the jet stream. And, in fact, we now have jet stream configurations that are historically, unprecedented. We have the, quote, ridiculously resilient ridge of high pressure over the west that blocks the jet stream. In fact, we posted data that shows a jet stream moving directly west to east, and when it gets uh, a particular distance off the U.S. west coast, it looks like it's hitting a wall. It splits in two different directions, like it's hitting a, a solid obstruction, and we know the ionosphere heaters can create high pressure zones. So, Is that what we're seeing? And and we have indication that uh, the the network of these ionosphere heaters are being used to steer the jet stream in almost any configuration they want, just like the polar vortex, which is now uh, the norm, which was uh, a a giant teardrop that comes down in such a configuration that was not seen historically. So why would we not think this is going on? We have an atmosphere that's much more conductive because of the metallic particles makes the atmosphere more conductive so makes these signals much more effective. So we're being exposed to the toxic metal spraying particulates, the microwaving signal of the ionosphere heaters. It's, it's quite a toxic brew, Michael, and we're seeing the effect uh, in the environment and human health statistics. It's quite horrific. And now we have methane entering the atmosphere. and This is extremely important because methane, there's so much methane in the Arctic alone, there's enough methane mathematically to create a Permian-style mass extinction a 100 times over. That methane is already beginning to release. Climate engineering appears to be worsening that situation, not making it better.
0: You so had two the- previous uh, interviews uh, on on that topic of, of methane releases. One of them was from uh, Paul Beckwith of the uh, Arctic Methane Emergency Group. And, uh, I mean, the science certainly seemed to be very compelling. The only thing is that uh, uh, Mr. Beckwith did seem to be... Uh, uh, a supporter of, of geoengineering. Uh, I was wondering, and they, they gave a press conference during the uh, Lima talks that uh, seemed to, did. I didn't find it got a lot of uh, media attention, but I was wondering what you were thinking uh, when, you, when you see uh, that kind of uh, app- apparent embrace of uh, geoengineering as if it's uh, this is something maybe we should do rather than something that's been happening.
2: I'm familiar with the presentation you mentioned, and media is not covering this. They're doing everything they can to hide the methane situation. Uh, Mr. Beckwith has been, I followed a lot of his work. He and the AMI group, the Arctic Methane Emergency Group, and Guy McPherson. I know Guy, and they've been the most straightforward with the data on the methane and how grave that situation is, but where they are not being truthful, and I believe they're perhaps being threatened on this note. I don't know. I I feel this from Guy, and in communication I've had with him, you know, he won't speak directly to this issue, but I believe that they are in some manner being threatened. To not admit that the, the climate engineering is going on is just as much denial as those who won't admit to the methane issue. So there's plenty of denial to go around all the way here, and... Again, with Beckwith, McPherson, or the AMIC group, I would argue this. If they think that they're putting out information for the common good, and yet they call for climate engineering when we know we have six and a half decades of it, and clearly it's not helping, it's making a bad situation exponentially worse, Uh, we're all sort of caught between a rock and a hard place from a society that doesn't want to admit there's anything wrong with the climate to a climate science community that says, yes, the climate's damaged, and we need to do... We need to, to undertake geoengineering, and the climate science community not admitting to the fact that climate engineering is a total disaster. It can't work. It can't work. The negative effects far outweigh any perceived benefit, and it's making a bad situation worse, not better.
0: Yeah, and, and just uh, as a, a matter of accuracy, uh, I know that Guy McPherson you mentioned. We did talk to him as well. He is not uh, supportive of geoengineering. Um,
2: well, if Guy, you know, if, if Guy uh, mentioned that, then, that, you know, I haven't communicated him for a long time. I'm very, very happy to hear that. Very happy to hear that.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, so you're, you're talking about, like, the uh, the, the, impacts, uh, on, on climate, uh, the impacts on climate, the impacts on trees, impacts on human beings, all these very negative impacts, uh, apparently. Um, are, are there other... Uh, impacts that uh, you think that we really need to be focused on just just in terms of the you know what the impacts are on you know biologically
2: the ramifications from climate engineering are, are so broad that it's it's truly hard to quantify them for example if we look at the the ozone depletion and the effect of the increased UV on plankton no plankton no people that's simple for most to understand. Again, global plankton stocks down now fifty to sixty percent. A lot of reasons for that. But mathematically a primary reason appears to be the incredibly intense UVB, which kills plankton. So they plankton can't rise to the surface and feed as they normally do, and when we see plankton stocks declining to this degree uniformly around the globe, clearly there's a a large overlying issue and um, no ozone layer, no terrestrial life on earth as well, so um, from that to this the soil toxification to the totally disrupted hydrological cycle again, instead of the boreal forests being a carbon sink as it should be, and as it would be, especially with increased carbon in the atmosphere, it's now a carbon source. The boreal forests are dying around the globe. I mean this is a statistical fact, so uh, from every direction, i mean there's uh negative and very dire ramifications from climate engineering, but you have a military-industrial complex that is committed to this. It's a mechanism of power. It's being used for weather warfare around the globe. Any country that doesn't tow the line for the U.S. finds itself in a weather disaster. Um, so quite simply, uh, they're not going to give it up until the population is screaming mad in the streets with their pitchforks and torches. But we are all facing a life-or-death scenario here. People better wake up for fast if we're going to have anything left to salvage.
0: I. Could, you, you, you've you kind of touched on the, the biggest question I have, which is, like, why is this happening? Why are they doing this? Is it you know, just uh, the next frontier in, in military technology? Is it a, an effort to, uh, just as Monsanto's and, and the, the GMO crowd are trying to control the food supplies, is this about uh, controlling the weather for economic reasons? Is this playing God? Is this about depopulating the Earth? Do, do you have any good take on what the motives are behind this whole uh, dynamic of uh, geoengineering?
2: I think it's a mistake for us to try to put it in any one box because I think it's all the above and likely much more. So ultimately any scenario like this comes down to power and control. In fact, the document I found in 1966, or from 1966, indicated their clear desire to decide where it rained too much, where it didn't rain enough, how they could use this to their advantage, both uh, militarily and in in our own nation. So it, it comes down to power and control. But once you hamper these systems and do as much damage as they have done, then while they're exercising that power and control, they're also trying to cover up that damage. And that's a lot of what's going on right now, I would argue. They're just simply trying to create the perception of, a climate system that's not as badly damaged as it is. In fact, if we look at the NASA GISS maps, we see the coldest, the most anomalously cold place in the whole world for a very extended time is the eastern half of the North American continent. Now, why would that be? It's, it's creating a public perception with these cold snaps on the ground that, uh, in fact, the planet's not warming when the planet is in total meltdown. So, and climate engineering is making that worse, not better. So. Again, I don't want anybody to believe anything I'm saying, I just simply hope they investigate that while the eastern U.S. is uh, in, a, in a two-week chill, we have an awful lot of temperature records being set around the globe, and if they started this in the late 40s, it appeared that they were attempting to start to mitigate what they knew would be a climate problem. That putting, you know, again, our most recent figure of 100 million tons of CO2 in the atmosphere a day, that's a problem. Cutting down the boreal forest, that's a problem. Paving the planet, that's a problem. So, as always, we we see the attempt to control everything in the military document, owning the weather, again, very telling document. People should look that one up. So it's power, control, ultimately, and that involves a lot of different things. Uh, Control against other nations that are not conforming to U.S. policy, if you will. Um, Weather derivatives trading, that's another. We have uh, those who run the climate modification are or have a, a gaming casino on the stock market for where the disasters are going to occur. Um, we have so many different elements being played out, Michael, that uh, people need to investigate it, but it's a very complex situation, a lot of layers to the onion.
0: Well, Dane Wigington, I, I really want to thank you for this uh, very uh, important introduction to this uh, whole um, uh, predicament uh, dilemma that we face. Uh, Dane Wigington is a uh, the lead researcher with geoengineering watch Uh, his website geoengineeringwatch.org provides uh, numerous documentation and uh, ongoing uh, presentations and other research uh, which uh, is a call to arms for the uh, concerns around uh, the one of the greatest threats if not the greatest threat uh, facing uh, the planet today. Dane Wigington. Thank you I think for thank you, uh, this uh, opportunity to talk to us.
2: Thank you. I hope everybody simply investigates. We do not sell anything on our site. We are non-political. We're simply trying to sound the alarm and provide a tool for people. So thank you for helping to give this issue a voice and I hope people investigate.
0: You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again
1: next week.